Welcome to our online campus. My name is Randy. It's my pleasure and opportunity to be here with you today. Today I'm kicking off a new series. Uh, this is going to be a, a summer series. It's called Walking Away from Jesus. I love that title. I think it's a great title, Walking Away from Jesus. And since I have uh, week one here, I'm going to explain a little bit about what this, what this series is about. It's about in the Bible, when people meet Jesus, their reactions are never neutral. Have you noticed that before? They're never neutral. Some people walk away confused. Some of them even walk away angry. But some people walk away healed or full of joy and purpose. One thing is clear, though. No one walks away from Jesus unaffected. Everybody walks away at least a little bit changed. Every week we're going to look at a different story of someone's encounter with Jesus in the scriptures. And since I've got week one, I pretty much had my pick of whoever I wanted to to kick off the series. And I chose Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus is a, is a well-known story. I love the story of Lazarus. But sometimes the, the, the danger with well-known stories is that we, we kind of think that we, we know it all, right? We know all about Lazarus. Yeah, he was risen from the dead and all this stuff. But what we're going to do today is we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna dig down a little deeper. We're going to um, try to take a closer look and just see with a fresh set of eyes. And I think we're going to find that there's actually more than meets the eye in the story of Lazarus. So, before we get into John chapter 11, or Juan capítulo 11, if you want, if you're my wife, uh, John chapter 11, a little bit of backstory, uh, like the Cliff Notes version would be this, is that Jesus just miraculously healed a bunch of people. Uh, in the last couple chapters, he healed a guy that was born blind, and the Pharisees and all the people are up in arms about it. He did more miracles and healed more people. And the long, the long story short is that even though he healed a bunch of people, um, there were still people trying to kill him anyway. So Jesus ends up leaving town and gets away from those people that are trying to kill him, trying to stone him to death. And when he's leaving town, it, it seems that the disciples are, are relieved, right? Like, their fate is tied to him, and if he's going to just be stoned in the middle of Jerusalem, it's like his disciples are all standing around with him, right? So when they leave town, uh, the disciples are relieved, and we'll, we'll see that. It's kind of like a subplot in this chapter 11 here. We're going to bring that to light a little bit. They, they, they do seem like they're like, whew, glad we left that place, but now Jesus is going to surprise them and, and flip the script on them. So John chapter 11, verse 1, we'll start right here. A man named Lazarus was sick. And he lived in Bethany with his sisters. They're Mary and Martha. Uh, you might have heard of them before, especially since this is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Ladies, how much do you have to love somebody to be wiping somebody's feet with your hair? You got to love this person a lot to be doing that, I'm sure. And, um, because this is the Mary that ends up doing it later, we can tell that, that maybe it had something to do with this story right here because Jesus is going to do something miraculous for her family and for her brother, so much so that, that she is so devoted to him that she's going to do something so outrageous as pour a bunch of perfume on his feet and wipe it with her hair. That's, do that's devotion. That's dedication. That's got to be up there with, uh, with, with just acts of love that you can do for somebody, right? That's, that's outrageous. Anyway, so... Her brother is Lazarus, who is sick, and the two sisters, they send a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. So we can see that it's a dear friend. Like, they also have some history. Uh, it's not just like a random person that's coming up to Jesus looking for healing or looking for healing for a family member. This happened all the time, by the way. Jesus healed plenty of strangers and people that he never met in his life before. Uh, he, did all, he laid down his life for them. 
but also in this situation, it's somebody that they know very well. Probably a, a friend, not just of Jesus, but of the disciples as well. They probably are, are very familiar with that family. So a dear friend is very, very sick. Now it goes on, uh, the next verse, uh, verse 4. When he hears this, right, when he hears this, Jesus says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Glorified through his death, right? Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, naturally he stayed where he was for, for two more days, right? Naturally, he, he heard that, that his dear friend, the people that he loved were, were coming to him. They sent a message to him to ask him to come quickly because Lazarus is like deathly ill. And let me ask, if someone came to you and it was a dear friend of yours, someone that you love very much, and they said, please, please, would you come? Would you come? Maybe Lazarus himself is even asking and has sent for Jesus. If someone sends for you and says, please come, it is the request of someone who is like deathly ill that you would come and be here, what would you do? I know what I would do. I would jump up and start running, man. I would go running to see my friend or see my family member, whoever it was that has requested me in their time of need. But we see that Jesus here doesn't do that. He does not do what comes naturally to us. He does something completely opposite. He stays where he was for two more days. Does the opposite of what you would expect. He took his time. We would come running. He took his time. And it's not the first time that Jesus does this. Jesus actually does this multiple times in Scripture. There's a story of a man named Jairus whose daughter was, was deathly ill as well. She's about 12 years old. Jairus comes running up to Jesus and says, please come with me, lay your hands on my child so that she would be made well. And Jesus says, all right, I'll follow you. And as Jesus is following Jairus, crowds of people are pressing in on Jesus. All these people are following him, trying to get their own healing, trying to get their own stuff. And that's where the story of the woman with the issue of blood comes into play. If you know your scripture a little bit, she reaches out and touches Jesus and is healed. And Jesus stops and has a whole conversation and all these people are pressing around. And meanwhile, while Jairus, Jairus who, who has stepped out and gotten Jesus and asked him to follow him to his house because time is of the essence here. His daughter is deathly ill. Jairus is off to the side watching Jesus get mobbed by these crowds of people and Jesus stops to talk to some lady. Now, of course, she had her issues and of course, Jesus and her, that was absolutely amazing what he did for her in that moment. But I'm sure Jairus, as, as a father of, of young girls, I'm sure Jairus was freaking out and was like, come on, come on, come on, come on. Don't you understand? Don't you understand, Jesus? I told you you were coming with me. It was going so well. Sometimes Jesus does the opposite of what we expect. It may not be on our time. But God is always on time, right? Today I want to I share seven lessons from the story of Jesus. And this is lesson number one. It might not be on our time, but God is always on time. Of course, the end of that Jairus story is that Jesus ends up healing his daughter and he raises her actually from the dead as well. It may not be on our time, but God is always on time. We struggle with this. The disciples struggle with this. The people around him struggle with this. Maybe even Lazarus was struggling with this. 
Maybe Lazarus knew that they had sent messengers to Jesus, and as he is laying in his bed dying, he's just waiting, and days are going by, and he's waiting for hearing the, 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 the footsteps of Jesus come into the house. And maybe his hope is there and it's vibrant the first couple days. Oh, Jesus is coming. I'm going to be all right. Jesus is coming. But as he gets sicker and sicker and as kind of the light dims and dims and dims and dims and dims and dims. Does the doubt creep in? Does he really love me? Is he really coming? I thought we were friends. Lord, I thought I was your child. Similar with the, with the storm on the, the sea. The story of the storm on the sea where all the disciples are in the boats and, and Jesus is there too. Jesus is fast asleep and a big old storm comes up and the disciples are freaking out because the storm is like humongous and they're going to get swamped and they're all up in arms and they run downstairs. They run down to the, to the bottom of the boat and they're like, Jesus, Jesus, wake up. Don't you care? Don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus is like, what? And he gets up and he rebukes the, the waves and the wind. Right? It may not be on our time, but God is always on time. Maybe you're in the storm right now. Maybe you're in need. Maybe you're even dealing with sickness. Trust in God's goodness because if he is in you, if you have Jesus inside of you, he is in the boat with you. It may not be on our time, but God is always on time. So after two days, they decided they're going to go back to Judea where they were just trying to stone Jesus. And we'll see the disciples are a little concerned about this. Uh, John eleven seven, 7. And then he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. After saying like two more days, let's go back now. Let's go back to Judea. And they say, but Rabbi, a short while ago, they were trying to stone you. They're trying to kill you. And now you're going back and is this a real question, actually, or is this a little bit of a challenge by the disciples here, right? This doesn't actually seem so much like a question. It seems like a little bit of a challenge. Read between the, the lines here. The disciples are probably scared, and not just for Jesus, but for themselves, too. In fact, I think that we're going to know this a little bit more, judging in a few verses by what Thomas has to say as one of the disciples. I think it kind of reveals their heart. They might even be having some, like, side conversations about this whole thing. You want to bring us back there, Jesus? Back there where they were just trying to kill you and maybe us, too, maybe us, too, maybe us? A little bit of a challenge here. Maybe they're having conversations among themselves. Right? You want to bring us back into the lion's mouth? And Jesus answers this little challenge with a kind of cryptic answer. Right? He says, anyone who walks in the daytime, he says, excuse me, he says, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And it's like, Jesus, like, what does this even have to do with anything, man? We asked if you're sure that you want to go back to where they were just about to try and kill you, and you're answering, like, daytime, nighttime, like, 12 hours. And what does that even mean? But again, we dial down a little bit into this word, and Jesus is... is <laughs> you say spitting fire, right? He, he's, he's bringing the facts here. He's bringing the deep truths here. 
Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble. This is not the first time that he said something like this because just two chapters ago in John chapter 9, he tells them something similar. He says, as long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me, the Father. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He just told them that nobody can work at nighttime, but as long as it's daytime, let's do the work, right? Let's keep going. And then he says, I'm the light of the world. Basically, he's telling them, if I'm with you, who can be against you? Jesus is like, it's not my time yet. And if you're with me and we're walking in the lights, if I'm the light of the world and you're with me and we're walking together, then you are in the daytime. Nothing's going to happen to you. Why are you tripping about this whole thing going on in Jerusalem, people trying to kill me? It's not going to happen until my time. And nothing's going to happen to you either because you're walking with me. You're walking with me. Jesus goes on even a little bit uh, in in the Gospel of Matthew, actually. He says that you are the light of the world. You, you, me, and all believers are the light of the world. What does that mean for us while we're alive? We are in the light. We are the light, actually, the light of the world. So we should be working as long as we have breath in our lungs. We should be working and moving to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ to do the good works that God has set before us to do as his children. We are supposed to keep going in the face of fear sometimes, even in the face of terror, in the face of of all odds against us, all worries in our mind, stress and anxiety sometimes. Oh, what happens if I say this or what happens if I do that or what happens if I step out in faith and and they reject me? What's going to happen? We got to stop. We got to refocus on Jesus and say, you're right. Jesus, you are the light. You've called me the light of the world because I have you in me. As long as I'm alive and got breath in my lungs, I'm going to bring that light with me. I'm going to bring it with me. I'm going to do what you have called me to do. Wherever you go, you bring the light with you. And until you sleep at the end of your days, until nighttime comes and the sun sets on your life, baby, Keep going. It's daytime, and you got to keep moving. He's telling them, let's go. What are you afraid of? We're going to keep working the works of my Father. And that brings us to lesson number two. And lesson number two here is that the love of God is bold. It's bold. They're going right back into the lion's mouth to rescue their friend. John eleven eleven. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Huh. Asleep. When do we usually fall asleep? At nighttime? Okay. But I'm going there to wake him up. When do we usually wake up? In the morning? Like daytime? Yeah. So he's just talking about daytime, nighttime. Now he's talking about Lazarus falling asleep, kind of nighttime, and waking up, kind of daytime. His disciples reply, Lord, if he sleeps... He's going to get better. (laughs) Why do we have to go there anyway, right? He's going to be fine. Let's not go back that way. (laughs) After he says this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. If he sleeps, he'll get better, they say, when Jesus had been speaking of his death. But the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So what's Jesus do? It goes on. So then he tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead, guys. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. 
Let's go to him. Let's go. The disciples are clearly a bit confused. The relationship, well, it's kind of interesting because Jesus is talking about, you know, sleep and death and light and darkness. And it's interesting to take even a step outside of Scripture for just a moment and to, like, look into our world and the culture. Something that is kind of fascinating is that throughout history, there has been this parallel. It's not just like a Jesus thing. It doesn't even just come from the Gospels. There's been this parallel idea of sleep being related to death, right? Uh, the Iliad, Homer, 700 BC, uh, maybe the most famous poet, or maybe the most famous, one of the most famous uh, fictional stories in history. He says that sleep and death are twin brothers. 700 BC. Nas, classic uh, rapper, maybe one of the greatest um, rap albums ever from like the, the mid 90s. It's like a, obviously secular. I'm not advertising that we play it right now. <laughs> I don't think that we want to listen to that in church, but honestly, Look, it's one of the most classic rap albums that's out there. And he says this. He says, I never sleep because sleep is the cousin of death. Homer says, death and sleep are twin brothers. Nas, thousands of years later, is saying just the same thing. And the reason that they're both completely different, right? It's like Homer's a Greek poet. Nas is, is from, is from our, almost our time and our culture. Total different time, total different culture, but both of them are perceiving the same thing, and they're just this close to seeing the big picture. The big picture being that God has put the truth about himself in creation. Like, you can look at things like sleep and death and light and day, and they are not just sleep and death and light and day, but they are testifying. Creation is testifying about God. Creation is like the great evangelist. Romans 1.20 says it like this. He says, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. That's what Paul says. Creation, the great evangelist. Sleep and death are related. The Bible, the Bible refers to death as sleep multiple times. And that gives us hope that death isn't permanent. Like he's going to wake us up someday. That's the great hope of Christ, actually. Every night and every morning, we play a part of this cosmic drama. Even people that don't know Christ go to sleep at night and don't even realize that they're prophesying, that they're testifying, that their own bodies, sometimes against their will, are testifying about something about God's creation, something about God's character, something about a truth that's deeper than flesh and bone. Sleep and death. Sleep at night. If you really want to get into, like, the imagery, sleep, of course, symbolizes death, and then the morning when you wake up, symbolizes the resurrection of Christ. He's going to wake everyone out of their graves someday. That's why 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you don't watch, so that you don't grieve like the rest of mankind. Why? Because they have no hope. They don't get it. They don't understand. They think when it, and it's, it's sleep time, when it's death time, it's lights out forever. And one of the main points of the gospel is that's, that's not the case. The great hope of Jesus Christ is that death is not permanent. Isaiah 26, this is from the Old Testament back in the day. 26, 19 says this, your dead will live. 
their bodies will rise. Awake. When do you wake up? In the morning. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For your dew is like the dew of the morning, and the earth will bring forth her dead. So lesson number three that we can take away here from this is that the joy comes in the morning. Sorrow is a song, is a Christian song. Sorrow may last for the night, right? You might go to your grave. You might know something, somebody that went down to the grave and, and it's mourning and it's difficult, of course, even for believers. But our joy and our hope is that it's going to happen in the morning when God shows up, when Jesus shows up on the scene and raises everyone from their dead. What do you think people are going to be doing? When we are raised from our graves, we're going to be freaking out, shouting and rejoicing and and screaming and testifying about the amazing goodness of God. And God's power is going to be shown off in what used to be our mortal bodies. He's going to show off because he has power over the grave. That is going to be a joyful, joyful morning for the people who know Jesus. The Lazarus story continues, and this is where we see Thomas. He kind of like gives us a little insight into what these guys are thinking. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, this sometimes gets preached, and I, and I respectfully would say it's maybe the wrong interpretation where it's like Thomas is like kind of just like, he's kind of a bonehead and just is saying this, like talking about Lazarus. Let us also go to Lazarus so that we may die with him. Uh, I, don't think, I, don't, I don't think that that's what he's talking about. I do think that this shows that the disciples were so kind of shook about what had just happened around Jerusalem where they were trying to kill Jesus and stone him to death. And they were kind of like not really interested to go to where Lazarus was because it was so close to to Jerusalem there. So I think Thomas here is is showing that the disciples are having conversations about it. And he's like, all right, let's go. Let's go too so that we might die with him. We're going to go with Jesus. We're going to die. If we're going to die, we're going to die, right? So... On his arrival, and, and speaking of which, like, the, the, the next chapters in John, right afterwards, is you start talking about, like, Last Supper stuff, and you get right into, right into the crucifixion, uh, you know, pretty soon after that. So um, this is not out of place where Thomas is saying this. So on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Four days. It's a long time. It goes on. Now, Bethany... Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, so it's close by. It's right back into the, into the lion's mouth, so to speak. And uh, many Jews had come from there uh, to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. So there's a lot of people from Jerusalem there as well. Uh, they're going to they're gonna know Jesus. They're going to have heard of him for sure. And maybe some of them were even there, you know, in this whole thing that just had gone down. Uh, it goes on. Verse 21. Lord, Martha says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had only been on time, Lord. If you'd only showed up when I asked you to show up, God. It's just a little bit of an indictment, right? A little bit of a, almost like an accusation. Like, what took you so long, Jesus? Like, should we have sent for somebody else? No, we sent for you. 
But, uh, but I see this as like a, a little bit of like a, a mix here in her emotions because it's like she's still kind of hopeful but doesn't really know and she kind of believes but she struggles with how, you know, and she goes on, she says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus says to her, straight up, your brother will rise again. And Martha answers, yeah, I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She's so close. She's so close. And he says to her, she's talking about, you know, he's going to rise at the resurrection at the last day. And his response to her is, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And I think this is a, this is almost, this is an invitation to us. And this is also like a, it's a little sharp here because do you believe this you like person that's watching this right now you do you believe this he says i'm the resurrection and the life the one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die do you believe this dear hearer because lesson number four here is that the resurrection isn't just a day Jesus is actually like redialing her understanding of the resurrection here. It's not just a day. The resurrection is actually a person in Jesus. Jesus himself is the resurrection. When he comes back, it's not because necessarily it's the day that's the important thing. The important thing is that he comes back and death cannot stand before him. He is the author of life itself. When life itself walks into a tomb Whatever's in there is going to just shoot back up and rise because he is just life itself. Death cannot stand before him. When he shows up, when he returns, he's going to just show up on the scene and the graves are just going to explode because he, he's got power all over that. The grave cannot stand before him. Dead people cannot stay dead when he's full of that much life. It just overflows from him. It's just who he is. He's not just the res resurrection. He's also life, the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? The resurrection is a person. She says, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. She said, the teacher's here and is asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. She was so close there. She believed, right? She believed. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God. She believed, but maybe not completely. She believed, but he was going to exceed even those expectations, and she already expected him to be the Son of God. The power of the Son of God is on a whole different level. So now, Jesus has not yet even entered the village, but he's still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jesus who had been with Mary, I'm sorry, when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to mourn there. It goes on. But when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. And she said this again because her sister just said this. They were having conversations about this. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
What do you think those conversations were like in that home when Lazarus died? They had sent for Jesus. They put their hope in that. They were waiting and waiting, and he could have come on time. Maybe they knew that he spent two more days. They're like, what are you doing? I thought you loved us. They are having these conversations because they're saying the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If only you'd shown up on time, Jesus. I've, I've said that before. I've said that before in my heart. If only you'd done what I asked you, Lord. What, why didn't you show up when I prayed for this person or when I prayed for myself? God, why, why didn't you show up in my time? God, why didn't you show up, Lord? Where are you? Where were you? Do you even hear me? Do you listen to me? Am I praying to a, a house and walls? God, if you would just show up, if you had shown up. Whew. And I know many of you have prayed prayers like that. Desperate. Words full of anguish and difficulty. Wrestling with hard times. Lord, if you had just shown up. Mary says, Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. I think similar to Mary here, we have a hard time understanding that Jesus is still at work even in the face of tragedy. That he's still good even in the bad, even in the bad times. And it's not easy, but we need to remember something. And this is lesson number five. We need to remember something. That humans don't have the complete picture. Down here, it's incomplete. It doesn't really make sense all the time. Why did this happen? Why did bad things happen to good people? Why did, why did this have to happen to, to whoever in whatever crazy situation? Crazy things happen all the time. We don't understand I know, I know a person, a plane, uh, a plane crashed through their roof randomly and killed somebody in the family. What are the chances? And they had to struggle with that. God, what, the, what in the world did we do? There are millions of houses. There's all kinds of fields and whatever. That could happen anywhere, but it happened in our house. Who's heard of a, a plane crashing into a house and killing somebody in it? Just this one house. Do you hate me? Did you single us out? Did I do something wrong? But we don't have the complete picture. You see, someday we'll see face to face. There will be a day when all else fades away and even our faith will be replaced with loving him face to face. The Bible talks about faith, hope, and love, right? Faith, hope, and love are like the greatest things, faith and hope and love. But it says something crazy. It says the greatest of these three is love. And I think that that's because faith and hope will come to their end point in love itself. You will be face to face with Jesus. Faith, what are you even going to need that for? You're going to be able to, to see him with your own eyes and touch him with your own hands. Hope, that hope is going to be realized. The hope of Jesus is very real because Jesus is here. That hope has come fulfilled. The greatest of threes is love. The greatest of those three is love. And we'll be face to face with that. 
So Jesus saw her weeping, Mary weeping, and saw the other people wailing with her, and a deep anger. Some translations translate this a little bit differently. They'll be like, oh, he was like deeply moved or, or whatever. But it's a deep anger. This is NLT. This is, a, this is, a, this is a, a straightforward, popular translation. And if you go back into the Greek, the sense really does seem to be a deep anger welled up within him at what? When he sees them weeping? It's not because they're weeping. A deep anger welled up within him, and he's deeply troubled. Where have you put him, he asked them. And they said, Lord, come and see. So they bring him over to the tomb. It goes on. And Jesus wept. Why is he even weeping if he knows he's about to raise Lazarus? Why is he weeping? It's because Jesus identifies with human suffering, the suffering of his children, the suffering of his people. He identifies with all human suffering. But you and I and Mary and Lazarus and Martha, remember they were close friends, dear friends, beloved. You're the beloved of God. Jesus is deeply angry at the things that are happening to you that sometimes we blame him for, that you might even blame him for. I'm going to explain Jesus weeps here. And the people who are standing by, they say, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying if only he had been on time? He's emotionally moved by identifying with human suffering. He sees you. If you are suffering, he sees you. He knows what you're going through. Lesson six is that God hates sickness and death. He hates it more than you do because he loves you and sees what those things put you through. And you are the beloved of God. He's deeply angry at sickness and death. And he goes to the tomb of Lazarus. And he says he's full of this deep anger. He's having his face off with death. He's rolling up his sleeves. And he's standing there in front of that tomb, and he's mad. He's mad for what sickness and death have done to this world. Eleven thirty-eight. Jesus is still angry. He arrives at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across his entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, the one who just said, yes, I believe you are the Messiah and the Son of God, the same one that just said that, is now protesting. Martha, the dead man's sister, says, wait. It goes on. Lord, he has been dead for four days. Son of God, Messiah. He's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. And Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? Believe me. Jesus says, believe me, believe in me. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this, dear hearer? There's not a bird in all creation that perishes out in the woods somewhere that God doesn't know about. Believe me, he says. 
It goes on, uh, 1141. So they roll the stone aside. And Jesus looks up to heaven and he says something interesting. He says, Father, thank you for hearing me. He says this in front of everybody. Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud. Why? For the sake of everybody standing here, so that they will believe that you sent me. And then Jesus shouts. And a lot of people have commented on this over the years, and they said, well, he had to say Lazarus to specify which person in the cemetery was going to come out, because if he just said, come forth or come out, the whole cemetery is going to stand up and come out. So Lazarus specified it. I don't know if that's true, but he, says, he specifies. He says, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound in grave clothes. Think like Egyptian mummy kind of, not quite, but close. His face is wrapped in a headcloth. And Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. And I don't know about you, but if I was there and a dead man just walked out and he's still wrapped in grave clothes and Jesus turns to me and says, go over there and unwrap him, I'm going to be like, me? Like, you want me to go to that guy? <laughs> like, I don't want to go over there. <laughs> unwrap him and let him go. Now Lazarus is walking. Lazarus walked away from this encounter alive where he had been dead. His whole life was changed from death to life. People were forever changed by what Jesus had done in Lazarus' life. Can you imagine hearing Jesus like say that prayer in front of them and be like, this is so that they believe, like, Father, this is so that these people believe in you who sent me. And then he raises a guy from the dead in front of all these people. People were forever changed by what Jesus had done in Lazarus' life. And similarly, if you know Christ already, you are alive where you had been dead. Knowing Christ now, your whole life has changed, and you would testify to that, and you would say amen. Now, God wants to use you so that other people are forever changed by what Jesus has done in your life. Be bold in your faith. Go for it we got to stop caring about what other people think. we got to stop focusing on, on our issues and our problems and whatever and put our eyes on Jesus, on that daylight, on that light itself, and say, God, that you would just carry me through. Help me to live for you. I walk with you in a way that are going to call people to the understanding and the knowledge of you as the Lord On the other hand, maybe it's you who are in the tomb right now. Maybe it's your faith that's in the tomb right now. Maybe your, your faith died due to something not being fulfilled in our time. Maybe disappointments put your faith in the grave, but Listen, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. We don't have the whole picture. 
God is good. The joy comes in the morning. He's going to wipe all those tears. Jesus is angry at the situation too. He weeps with you. Lesson seven here is that it's time to take off the grave clothes. If you don't know Christ, it's time to know Christ. If you believe, and it's not something that I can just like say and manufacture words and it sounded great, so you kind of bought it. That's not how this works. It's if the Spirit of God moves in you through a faulted man and the Scripture speaks and you're like, I don't understand what's happening right now, but something happened in my heart and I totally believe this because it must be God. That's how God works. That's how the Spirit of God works. You could be sitting there next to a friend and your friend is like, yeah, whatever, that was okay. But something happened to you. Let me tell you, it has nothing, almost nothing to do with me. I'm just trying to, to, I'm just trying to obey God and do what he's called me to do. And if God is calling you right now, then it's your responsibility to say, yes, Lord. And you take off those grave clothes because when you accept Jesus, when you accept that he is the light of the world, that he is life itself, that he is the hope of glory, you pass from death to life. Something happens and you come alive. It's time to take off those grave clothes. If your faith has been shipwrecked, because of disappointments, because of things that were not fulfilled, because of deep grief and sorrow and heartbreak. God is still good and he still loves you. It's time to take off the grave clothes. Come out of that grave. Get free in the name of Jesus. Leave the past behind. And look forward to the day where you will see him face to face. Lord, I just thank you, God. Father, I thank you, God. That you are amazing, Father. That you have put all this into order. That you have put all these, it's almost like hidden secrets and mysteries about yourself. You put it even into creation around us, even in the things inside of us and the things that we do every day. They testify about you. You are that amazing, God. Lord, you've made us in your image. God, we are image bearers. We carry that truth about you everywhere we go, whether we even know it or not, God. As humans, we do that. God, that you would speak softly to the people who have been wounded in church, who have been wounded in, in situations that were beyond their control, who have been wounded, God, have been tempted, Lord, to blame you, God, for not showing up for not changing outcomes of things. God, that you would speak to them, Lord, and call them back, Lord, invite them back, God. Not only would they rise from the tomb that they're in right now where their faith has died, but they would take off those grave clothes of disappointment and tragedy and someday, when they see you face to face, God, they will rise again in the morning of that great and amazing day, Lord. You are the resurrection and the life, God. Be glorified 
Father, in that mighty name of Jesus, Lord. Amen. Amen.